do you think people know that we missed last week or a week behind? No, I don't. Oh. Well, we are. I don't notice. Life got the best I of us last week. I don't notice when podcasts I listen to skip a week. Yeah, me neither, actually. We are a week behind. Because there's so what much content out last there. last week, Eugene? This is Making It Up, episode 190, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, and more. Let's get into it. So basically, two or three weeks ago, there's a typhoon, which led to two days of cancellations for shoots that we had to make up last week. So it was kind of out of pocket. So Eugene's end. It's his fault. Yeah, if, it was my if fault, If any actually. of you missed our missing week, you can point the figure at Eugene. Yeah, we also tried to record on the weekend and we couldn't We couldn't actually manage that either. Anyways, Ooh, it doesn't that's matter. That's my fault, on the other hand, because I needed to catch up on marking. Have you, have you written a big fat F yet? No. Wait, should I say that? I don't even know if I should say that. I have not failed anyone. All right. It would be hard to fail, I think. You would have to not come to like 50%, I think, of my classes in order for me to fail you. Do you have any Easter eggs in your uh, classes? What do you mean by Easter eggs? Like small little nuggets that people would only ever discover. Like, for example, like an answer to a quiz or something because someone showed up. Oh, no. Wait, you haven't thought about this? Well, I don't give out any quizzes, but that is interesting to me. You have to reward participation and attendance. I don't feel like that's, I don't and feel attendance. Like that's fair. Whoa. Though. Is it fair? I was going to say that today, actually, I did have my students do some reading from Offline Matters by Jess Henderson. Oh, nice. They really enjoyed it. I'm actually going to email her and tell her that. That's pretty dope, actually. They this thought it is, was great. Can you please explain what Offline Matters yes, is? Yes, yes. Offline Matters is a book written by Jess Henderson that Macon did a profile of and review of. Actually, I did the interview. Yep. Um, <laughs> oh, I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> I did forget. But Nate, Nate's been in communication with Jess a lot because we regularly publish other articles from her in an ongoing series and offline matters came out of a newsletter slash group that she had started that and was I'd concerned been following about for a while. yeah that Eugene had been following for a while and that is concerned about being offline essentially not concerned and, about being offline but more so the value of thinking about things in the context yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. analog and being disconnected from the internet and digital world yeah so the two essays in question that I had my students read. One was called Precious Kills and the other was called Aim Lower. And they really enjoyed the Precious Kills one, which is about when too much consideration becomes doubt and nothing gets done. And then Aim Lower was about time management, essentially, and being aware of your perspective on how much time it takes to do things and the human nature of routinely underestimating yourself, which is very relevant to us because we didn't get around to recording this last week. You know what's really interesting is that. When you, when I was going to school, I always wondered how 
literature was suggested or integrated into someone's curriculum? Hmm. Well, you now see it in action on my end. I did an open call in the Macon Briefing a while back for interesting reading suggestions from Macon Briefing readers. And quite a few people responded to me with good suggestions. So thank you, everyone. My strategy, I suppose, is all of the things that I enjoyed reading enough to recommend, I think is worth considering to use. And if I thought it was really boring, like, why would I have my students read yeah. it? You know? Yeah. Anyway, should we jump into it? Let's do it. You go first. The lesser prepared person. I came across this white paper via Twitter believe shared by Lincoln Ether, who's a former Macon community member, actually. And it is called From Dependence to Independence, The Rise of the Independent Creator. There's a lot of independence in that statement. Uh, the entire white paper, the research was done by nonfiction research. So you can look them up. And what this white paper is based off of is 1,624 interviews slash surveys with U.S. creators, and they did qualify the creators to ensure that they are earning an income as independent creators in order to gather this data. And the background of it is that we're familiar with the creator economy. Eugene and I have talked about it on many episodes. However, the creator economy, while it's in headlines and booming, it's not all fun and games. Right. Never. Yeah. Which we've also discussed. One of the main issues that this survey revealed was creator burnout and how close all of these individuals were to feeling like their work was not worth it and how precarious they felt in their situation. So some numbers for you listeners, 93 percent of those surveyed said that being a creator has introduced stresses that have negatively impacted their lives with 45% saying they've experienced big emotional lows. Only 35% of all creators feel that they are earning a reasonable income and putting in an acceptable amount of time and effort. Can you reread that last one? Only 35% of all creators feel that they are earning a reasonable income and putting in an acceptable amount of time and effort. So that, in theory, would make you re- evaluate what is the definition of a creator, right? On the flip side, what that stat means is that 65% feel overworked and or underpaid. Got it. Yeah. And all of the qualification for this survey in particular was independent creators dependent on income that they were receiving through a couple of income streams. There's a chart. While you pull that up, yeah, I think the one thing that you can't really get away from is most independent creators need to treat the act of being a creator and an independent, newly sort of like a newly founded independent creator lifestyle is just basically a startup, right? Yeah. So I think they kind of go hand in hand. Like you yeah. can't, just like you wouldn't expect a business to be profitable within the first six months, the same could be said as a creator. So I think that while there is some, sort of value in like you know these stats i don't think they're that far off than what is the reality of just running a business i don't think i would say i am surprised as in i'm not shocked like oh wow i totally thought that creators were 
earning more money and working less and that they were happier overall. But I would say that it is still sobering to see it in hard numbers to know that the reality of the situation is is not just anecdotally depressing, but in actuality is not encouraging to people to enter it. Anyway, income streams that these creators had include revenue share of advertising, paid subscriptions, tips from fans, creator funds, brand sponsorships, merch sales, affiliate links, community memberships, online courses, and community events. This chart is interesting as well, which I think we have talked about, again, anecdotally in broad strokes, but just demonstrating there's like 10 different things here. How many income streams you have to juggle as a independent creator in order to make Just it like a media it. company. I mean, the line is blurry, right? Because actually you and Alex, you're two people. It's like two independent creators came together. The line between being an independent creator and then a company is so thin. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't consider ourselves independent creators, but we have worn those hats before. Why did you find this interesting? Or was it more sort of sort of like a, not a slap in the face, but just like a reality check? You know, one reason I found it interesting is stepping back a second and looking at the positioning of the white paper's existence, because the group that did this survey and in the paper itself, they say that they were not just interested in surveying the current landscape of creators, but also hypothesizing what the future might look like for creators. And in relation to the platforms that we all use, or many of us use, I will tell you what they suggest in terms of scenarios. So scenario one is that creators continue to use a lot of different platforms and tools and have many partnerships. This is essentially the way things are now and then moving forward. And Makin is an example of this in action because we use Patreon and Discord and MailChimp to send the newsletter, which in theory we could also use for other community aspects, but we don't any rate, you get the picture. All right, scenario two. This, I haven't looked that much into. Maybe you know more than me. They suggest that in the future, there might be more integrated platforms that pick up momentum, that combine all of the things that people currently use. So- Yes, Patreon's that. But it's not fully. It's getting, well, I mean, day by day, it's kind of getting there. Like it doesn't have a Discord, for example. It doesn't, but then, for example, you can- have them create and fulfill merchandise for you. Oh. Like that would be an example. Like you're, I agree. There's no sort of thing that encapsulates all of it. Something that encapsulates all of it would also be, in my mind, reaching new potential community members. But I also well, think it would fail. Like you think any company like that would fail? I think it would fail potentially because I think the quality of the tools would not be good enough. I think the best way actually in the future is just like a, a broad series of tools that plug in as APIs. So for example, rather than Patreon try to build their own competitor Discord, they just create some sort of gate that allows you to access Discord, which they already do, but just building functionality on top of that. I mean, ultimately the sort of catch all of everything going forward, I think will probably be some sort of Web3 
solution. Oh, interesting. It'll, it'll just be a series of things that you can mix and match and you can plug into one another. Yeah, that's a possibility. I mean, I accept that in the short term, there isn't going to be something that comes out that actually there would probably be a lot of displeasure across the board about the different functions, but because of the convenience of it, people might still go for it. And then the last scenario that these authors suggest is that giant social platforms swallow everything. This is the most dismal scenario, but essentially that Facebook acquires Patreon and Discord and OnlyFans and rolls them or, you know, shuts them down. Yeah. Incorporates their functions into their own, which Instagram to a degree started doing after Patreon got big and allowed for tipping and other Yeah, like functions. they want to now allow brands to connect and dialogue with creators, right? Yeah. They're they want to not just be the place of what's that word? You know, not just be the broad end of the funnel where mass amounts of people become aware of you. They want to be the bottom funnel. Well, they just bottom want part. you to retain people all the way through on your yeah. platform yeah. and not just which is Right now, Instagram, I would see as being the broad end where you try to cast a super wide net and then direct them to your OnlyFans, Twitch, Patreon, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that most recently, I don't know if you heard, but Snapchat had a really poor earnings. And basically because of that, their stock was like down 25% overnight. And a lot of it was attributed to the fact that now Apple no longer lets you to track users across apps. I think for the first time ever, big tech has now encountered a situation where their biggest defensible moat is now no longer there. And that's tracking between apps, trying to serve you the, the right ads. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And this is a scenario, I would say this is the most optimistic scenario, which they didn't spell out as such. But there is other parts of the PDF that include mention of this, which is that independent creators own everything that they make. And they own their audience in a way that they can take with them wherever they go, which would mean not being beholden to any tool or service, whether that was a tool at the size of Facebook or instead, you know, a smaller end like Patreon, which is also not very small. But you get the point. You know, is it possible to imagine a future scenario where I have really fine control? over my own tools and audience and what I'm offering. Yeah. I think this whole conversation does kind of go back to how people create some sort of foundation towards being an independent creator. Sometimes there's value in diving headfirst into something, but there's also value in easing into it as well. And like understanding your own appetite and personality can help define which path you take. So do you for example, keep a day job or a part-time job while you work the rest of the day on a project that you eventually want to make your career. I've kind of done both. And I think there's no real right or wrong way. I think I've said it before with making, I'm like, we dove headfirst into it. Maybe we shouldn't have. I, I think maybe there's something that is a bit of a misnomer when people suggest that, oh, if you don't work on it full-time, then you're not focused. But I've also found that if you care enough about it, you'll find time for it. And knowing that time is such a valuable resource, even you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, yeah. your ability to value time actually is incredibly powerful. 
because mm. it helps determine, oh, am I, is this actually important to me or not? And mm. I feel like that's something that's increasingly creeping up on me, right? I mean, it's just a matter of getting older too, right? You have I was things. Just gonna say that. You have shit that you want to accomplish, and you're like, "Oh man, time's running out. Do I spend time doing something that maybe ten years ago, like let's say playing video games for five hours, is something yeah. that you wouldn't think twice about? Obviously, you think twice about it now." Actually, what you said just now reminded me of Vicky Gu's recent feature for Macon, where she spoke with Eric Bruner Yang of the food group Foreign National, and he said to her. So now it's just really about enjoying the moment. I'm healthy and there's still something standing. And whenever I get that next spark, we'll figure out what that is. But for a while, I felt like I created this machine that was dictating my life that got broken down because of the pandemic. And now I feel like I have a little bit more control, whereas before the work was just so consuming. Now I want to be able to spend time with my kids and nurture them and give them some stability. So that's just one quote. And there's obviously a greater context in the article that provides more insight into what where his mind is at and where he wants to take the company. The reason why I was reminded of this is because of this valuation of your time. And it might not be allocated towards working really hard on something. And for some people, it will be. It's going to be spending more hours on whatever community you are building or the independent creative work you're doing. And for some people, you might land somewhere else when you consider how much your time is worth. I think that to that point, you know, I, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is that when it comes to time and just general well-being, is it the way you spend your days and how you spend your time that's more rewarding? Or is it to have the ability to say, I achieved an outcome? And I think maybe it differs from person to person, but the but time you spend and how you spend it often feels like it's more rewarding. Do I mean, you know what I mean? They say that the way you spend your hours is the way you spend your life. It might not feel like it, like what I choose today doesn't mean it's all of my life, but actually that's how time works is that day by day it adds up to being what you dedicated your life to. Yeah, I'm not trying to make it like really deep, but that's just the case is that actually every hour you choose is some percentage of the time you have. My question to myself often is that what is the outcome of working hard, right? You work hard. It's like if you don't enjoy working hard, then I think almost the hard work is both harder to, to achieve. Like just actually plugging away at something is not easy. But secondly, it's I think that there's not a lot to stand on in terms of an achievement if you didn't enjoy the process to get there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. It's there's a there's another stat from this paper that I found sobering, and it was interesting the way they figured this out in the survey. The research showed many creatives are less than one hour away from considering all of their work to not be worth it. And that's such a strange mind frame to be at. Like, I spend 10 hours a day doing this independent creative work, but if it was pushed to 11, it would no longer be worth it. What this says to me actually is that you're on a spectrum where you're actually very close already. And it's not the one hour that makes a difference, but it's like added up. There's probably many, many hours that have not necessarily been worth it in your mind. That's it from me. I wouldn't say that the paper or us provide a rosy solution for independent creators. It's, you know, case by case, right? Burnout feels different for each person. The paper doesn't actually qualify in a detailed way. The stress looks like. Yeah. Or the negative impact. And that's like something 
you have to determine for yourself. Yeah. All right. My topic this week is Ask the Experts. I'm just starting out as an artist. How much should I charge my art? And this piece by Francesca Gavin appeared in Artnet. I want to start with this quote. Prices are a lot more than just numbers. The price of artwork is a result of complex calculus and reflects an artist's position in the food chain. So for me, this topic has become increasingly interesting on how you value art, because I think that as much as I want to avoid the speculative nature of art itself, it's hard to get away from, right? Whether it's sneakers, it's NFTs, it's even working with artists. Speculation. Right? That's a trendy word for yes. this year, I think. So I, I, I've personally found it interesting because obviously us as people that work in the creative industry need to come to terms with the fact that we have to find a way to value our work and hopefully get maximum value for the input we put in and the effort we put in, right? This is somewhat of an aside, but relevant. Did you see Mischief's recent project? Yes, I did. Mischief, which is a art collective, I suppose we could call them, bought an original Andy Warhol drawing for 20,000 USD and then made 999 high quality forgeries of the original and shuffled them all together, intentionally losing and erasing all trace of which was the original. Each one is now being sold for $250 a piece. I think they're sold out. And the quote from them is, they are all definitely by mischief and also all possibly by Andy Warhol, which is very Schrodinger's cat of them. Anyway, I think it's a great artwork. Project. Project. Piece of performance art. Yeah. But before we kind of jump into things, I wanted to share some of the more factual stuff that Gavin highlights in regards to how artisan pricing was achieved back in the day. So during the medieval and Renaissance eras, art was based on materials, labor, and scale, which is quite similar to how you would do it like if you're building a house today. Uh, In the 17th century, new economic models featured commissioned artworks for fixed prices. So it's like, hey, Cherise, I want this art piece done for the equivalent of 10,000 US dollars, let's say. And during that time, religious and historical work started to command a larger sum relative to still life and landscape work, which I think is kind of interesting too, right? Like, it's kind of like what's trendy. It's like, oh, Air Force Ones are out this season, dunks are in. So there's going to be a a premium on resold dunks. In light of that, it's not that different than how the world currently looks and values artwork, right? Back in the day, there was a certain level of fame and notoriety that probably came with the work of an artist. And that still exists when you look at the Instagram following of an artist, for example. So nothing has really changed. Um, And then finally, by the 19th century, art started to tip in favor of the creative and your ability to impart a creative personality or a creative take on things started to become valued more and more. Uh, And there's this one insight that I wanted to share It's a quote by Jesper Elg. It's this quote by Jesper Elg of Copenhagen's V1 Gallery. It's very important when you start out as an artist who is just beginning to exhibit that the prices are at a level where your own peers and generation can afford to buy it. I'm thinking about what it costs to buy an expensive pair of, say, acne jeans. If you can buy a nice drawing for the same price, I'd prefer to get the drawing. What are your thoughts on that? I'm looking up the cost of a nice pair of acne jeans. Call it like 250, 300 US dollars. I don't think it's that expensive. That's very close. It's 2,500 to 3,000 HKD. So that's like 300 under 400 USD, which is actually quite expensive. That is expensive. For jeans. 
I wouldn't buy a pair of jeans for four hundred dollars. Yeah, but personally, uh, sorry if that was so shady to people who own four hundred dollars jeans. What I think is really interesting is that there's been this belief, anyways, and you've probably heard it too, is that like don't undersell yourself. Yeah. Right. Does this fly? In the face of like, don't undersell yourself. If you think you yourself, your work is valued more than a pair of acne jeans at, you know, 200 or 350 US dollars. I suppose the important note here is an artist who is just beginning to exhibit. So they're not super specific about what counts as just beginning. But my understanding is that this is the first time you are pricing your work ever in which case i think that makes sense i think that's the difference what i think i is important and i'll probably get to it at some point maybe not right away is my next point but i think it's just like understanding how to build foundation yeah yeah, yeah. right i mean I, the I, article I'll... goes into the logic of it as well yeah. at least i followed along with the logic of the author if you are an exhibiting artist maybe you would feel differently yeah and they also talk a little bit about how a gallerist comes into play i think gallerists for the most part have gone a bad rap because they're basically rent seeking in a way they like they take advantage not advantage i think that's the wrong word basically they take too large of a cut which sometimes can be upwards of 50 percent. they are not underselling themselves yeah that's for sure is what the reputation is the argument here is that for galleries who take 50 percent of an artwork sale after any framing and production costs what it means is that you know these these galleries are often working with larger works at higher prices to often pay for rent as well. And like I think there's a level of intangibility that comes with being shown in a gallery. I think there's a level of trust, there's a level of expectation, curation. You could say that the exhibiting artist industry is not at an independent creator economy phase because they are very dependent on these established structures. Yes. Like galleries and art festivals and these blue chip qualifications. Yeah. I'm not here in defense of galleries because I think they definitely play a role. I think the, arg- the argument or the understanding is that like, I think the challenge is that it's hard to define what role these people play. But then again, zero dollars is zero dollars. If your work doesn't sell because you try to sell on your own, but no one buys it, then you're left with nothing. But mm-hmm. if someone takes your artwork, you know, sells it for $5,000 and you make $2,500. That's a whole lot more than zero. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me at least that at this moment in time, artists aren't really in a position to sidestep the structure in place. And as they talk about artists themselves, they also discuss about just the pricing strategy as you grow as an artist, because it's really hard to go backwards. So like, how do you maintain that proper trajectory of price appreciation? Like, you know, a lot of luxury brands do this where every year, every few years, there's an increase in the cost of their product. And sometimes that increase in product could come down to like some bullshit, like, oh, the cost of manufacturing is now more, right? Other times it just might be like, you know, we can't keep up with demand or they just want to adjust prices accordingly. But sometimes this is something just to be cautious about because at the very end of the day, the quality of the artwork is also very dependent on the brand of the artist. And it's unfortunately very hard to get away from that. I was in a restaurant the other day that was like, oh, you know what? This is really good. And it's not like the restaurant was like not well known, like, but it definitely didn't necessarily carry the same weight as some of its peers. 
And I was like, oh, I wonder what that is. And I was like, oh, I could totally tell because like I think the the general persona of the chef himself was like very soft spoken. I think soft spoken unfortunately doesn't really go that far these days, right? Yeah, I, mean, I, I agree. It's just a huge bummer. I'm sad about it that the world has not changed significantly in that regard. Yeah. You need and, as much charisma as you did back in the 19th century. Yeah. And, and this kind of is supported by this 2005 book called Talking Prices by economist Olaf Veltius, who said that language gossip stories and rituals of daily life contribute to artists' perceived worth alongside museum exhibitions, publications, or other sources of praise. This is really interesting because I was talking to a friend who is much deeper into the world of art than I am. And he was just saying that there's a lot of like tips that are kind of shared. So for example, an, guys from an auction house might be like, hey, you should buy work from Sally the painter mm -hmm. because something might happen. And it's like, not insider, it's not insider trading, but it's kind of like, buy it because something's going to happen. And that something actually, as this person found out, it's like, you know, this, this piece was bought for 5,000 US dollars. And the next time it went to auction, it was going for $50,000. Like that's an anecdotal sort of example. And it's not, I'm not saying that every artist is like this, but those are examples of how you're like front running things where another, another example, it could be like, you know, an artist who's kind of on the come up has projects in the line that someone might know about that will increase their profile. So imagine if, you know, you bought Daniel Arsham before you knew Daniel Arsham was going to be working on an Adidas project. And he was also going to work on a Porsche project or whatever. Yeah, but it is really interesting, this element of art pricing. And it feels so chancy and arbitrary in a way that I'm sure is frustrating because it's interesting what you're saying about like insider trading type work. But for me, it also reads as like, being related to non-art things like if so-and-so is dating someone yeah or if someone famous or scandalous even they don't even have to be they don't even have to have a positive image but let's just say someone well-known acquires a piece of art or says something about an artist then all of that could contribute to the pricing yeah which all says to me that sometimes it's about being lucky and unlucky i'm sure is very frustrating but also it was interesting from an outsider perspective. You can definitely manufacture. Industry. Manufacture your luck. Success. Manufacture the gossip. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there's some other things I want to touch upon. The feeling of underpricing yourself in the beginning. Because I all, this is another like from same friend who was mentioned how like, you know, these are all, the, the numbers are, aren't, aren't right. Right. I, I don't remember ex the exact numbers, but it's like, you know, Murakami might have sold a sculpture in the four digit range only for it to be turned around and resold for like, you know, 50 grand or something. And that part of art is something that pushes artists to really look deeply into the world of NFTs. Cause there's this belief that you can collect royalty payments. I was recently talking to some people that were advised by their legal department to not touch any NFTs that have royalties built into them because of the fact that they might come under fire from the SEC because they're considered a security because anytime you have this sort of like promised profitability associated with something as a sort of a financial instrument, then it becomes a security. 
Yeah, I understand. The nature of the thing changes in a fundamental way like, so that it is no longer an artwork. Yeah, like art's kind else. of a, a gray area. Like you don't expect art to like we always appreciate. We say it's a gray area, but I understand that from legal bodies perspectives, there are very clear definitions yeah. of what needs to be overlooked yeah. or not overlooked, managed. I was going to say, I am interested in this emotional result of underpricing yourself to begin with. I don't know if I've shared this anecdote on this podcast, but when I literally the first week I became a freelancer after leaving Hypebeast, I charged a client 3000 Hong Kong dollars, which is only 350 USD for an entire website, which I look back and think, wow, that was really dumb, Sharice. Yeah. Past me. But I think that what's important, too, is that if there isn't a the ability for your work to be traded because it's too high and it's too hard to find a buyer, then you kind of get stuck in your tracks. No, I understand. I understand. You underprice yourself so that you do get any work sold and then you get conversations started about you and people own your work in their homes or wherever they're putting it. So like as much as an artist might feel like they undervalued that, you know, $5,000 sculpture that went on for 50,000, if they'd never created that sculpture in the first place, maybe they wouldn't have been incentivized to continue being an artist. Yeah, you can't know. And they might never have reached that $50,000 yeah. valuation. I mean, my whole career getting started in the world of like streetwear and media, like I was fortunate to have a place to live, like a roof over my head, but like I wasn't really getting paid that much. And that's obviously this is a whole nother discussion that goes beyond the privilege that's required to work in certain industries right whether it's art whether it's media and the privilege that comes from being able to take a job that underpays you all right that's all i got from me i think in closing it's like i see the validity as an artist because what's also really great about art is that it's typically like a one-off not always like there's gonna be prints but there's a limited run behind art so it means that early stuff can inevitably be priced cheaper because you're selling something different at every iteration. Like art can get better. It can grow bigger in scale, et cetera, as you progress as an artist. But it would be very hard if you're selling one cookie. It's the same cookie. Yes, there might be small incremental updates, but it's the same cookie to go from 50 cents to $5, let's say. It's just a different product altogether. And what? that's the value of like luxury goods non-fungible goods what i find very interesting about a art career is this ability for pricing to change over time you know not just that it goes from underselling to then really astronomical to really astronomical numbers but this idea that once you achieve a certain level of success or valuation then actually it affects all of the work that you've ever done Yes. And that's a really nice effect, I think, that most people don't get. Like, we only move in a linear way. But the issue becomes it doesn't really matter for the artist. Like, they don't capture any upside. Like, if your previous 50 pieces of artwork were struggling to move and then your 51st goes for $10 million, like, you don't capture any upside for all the time you spent. You know what I mean? I think if you're a collector, yes, it's awesome. But then there's also this in cahoots type relationship between collectors and artists, right? I mean, I'm contemplating what you said about the artist doesn't capture any upside. And what I'm going to say is maybe not very practical because you're right. 
the artist doesn't capture any economic upside, but there is a sense of legacy that an artist can achieve that maybe those of us that aren't in art don't get, don't enjoy. Where, you know, like what I said about mischief, I mean, Warhol's not no longer even on this planet, right? I mean, maybe ghost or spirit up to you on what you believe. The point is that Warhol's sketch was just like a throwaway drawing turns out to be worth 20,000 USD. And I know, again, I agree. He's not even here to enjoy that, but I like it as a construct of the art world. Yeah. All right. I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Megan, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Megan.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us there. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. 